Psalm 3, I have put in with the lament psalms, but you're going to see it's not only lament. In fact, really all but one psalm that I can find has more than just lament. And we're actually going to talk about that one psalm in a few weeks. But almost every other lament psalm is not just lament. And so we'll, we'll get there a little bit. But be turning, actually be turning to Second Samuel. So before we even read the text from Psalm 3, you can look at Second Samuel 15. And as, as Jason said with the kids, there's something going on in David's world that we need to be aware of before we read Psalm 3. Because it's my belief that Psalm 3 was written at this time in David's life. And so the historical context of what's happening for the author is pretty important here. They have an impact, I think, on how we read this psalm. The first verse of Psalm 3 says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And we're going to, I think, see what David meant by that here. We know most of David's life. Most of you have heard of lots of things that David has done, both good and bad. Um, in fact, unfortunately, he's probably known for his the bad stuff more than the good. But we know that he's faced a lot of problems in his life. In fact, he went against a bunch of enemies. We can think of David and Goliath, the Philistines being one of the biggest enemies. But that probably, in my opinion, probably didn't have as much impact on David as what was going on in Psalm 3. And specifically in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1 through 12. So I'm going to make my way there. 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 12. Let's, let's read that together. And we're going to find out who the enemy is in this story. After this, Absalom... And if you aren't aware of who Absalom is, Absalom is a son of David. Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Um, actually, before we read, let me, let me just take a couple steps back. Let's get some context here. So we're not going to read it all, but go back to 14 and let me just summarize a little bit. Let me set the scene a bit here. So David's family is a mess. It's a wreck. And if you're in our small groups... We looked at Abraham's family this past week, and the, the word dysfunctional was used. Um, David's family is, is very similar, not in the same ways, but in just the dysfunction of it. Um, it it's not getting any better here in 2 Samuel 14, 15, 16, 17. Uh, a, one of David's sons horribly you know, treats his sister in a way that he never should, and then another one of his sons kills the other guy for it, uh, Absalom was the one, says about Absalom in chapter 14, verse 25, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Now, this is significant just in the sense that it helps us understand a little bit of Solomon's problem. There was some arrogance involved here probably could have come from his handsomeness. He was known throughout the land for it. He had an unusually thick head of hair, which actually comes into play later in the story. And 
leads me to believe that being bald-headed might not be so bad. Okay? Um, So Absalom was the, the brother who killed his brother Amnon, and he ran away out of fear of David. He thought, my, this is, you know, he, he thought he was doing the right thing, I, I guess. But then he realized quickly that there were going to be consequences for this. And so he took off and he left. He ran out of fear. But 2 Samuel 13, verse 37, it says that David missed him. Three years later, Absalom's gone for three years. David's commander, Joab, he kind of convinces David to let Absalom come back home. Let him come back. But Absalom doesn't even see David for another two years. So he's in the kingdom. He doesn't even see David. Now for five years, he hasn't seen his father. So in order, he's now trying to get back in David's presence, and he's pestering Joab, set it up, set up a meeting. Joab won't do it. In fact, he almost ignores him. So what does Absalom do? He sets Joab's fields on fire. Maybe that'll get his attention. Well, it does. And Joab sets that meeting up. David, in the meeting with his son Absalom, kisses him on the cheek, welcomes him back home. And you'd think there'd be peace. There's four years and nothing really happens overtly. But behind the scenes, Absalom is undermining David's authority for four years. And he's swaying the heart of the people including one of David's most, most trusted advisor, advisors, Ahithophel, his friend, someone who David trusted to speak the words of the Lord to him. That drops us off here in 2 Samuel 15. Now let's read verses 1 through 12, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless his word. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. This is right after David welcomed him back into the, the, the kingdom. And Absalom used... And Absalom used to to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to you, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Verse 7, At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will worship, offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Golanite, David's counselor from his city, Giloth. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Let's pray. Lord, context matters, history matters. And I, 
we can see and read and hear of David's history. And then as we read Psalm 3 in a few moments, we'll be able to understand it better, Lord. But I'm, I'm looking out at people, and I don't know all of their history. I know a lot, but I don't know it all. But you do. And so while history matters here, Lord, it matters in our lives too because inevitably things happen in this life that we don't like. They don't go the way that we had planned. And it causes frustration and anger and sometimes fear. And Lord, we so quickly run to everything else for safety and comfort. Help us to shuffle what we see as important and put you at the top. And not just important, Lord, but God, you're it. There's nothing else that compares. So Lord, as, as you teach us this morning, may your servants here be encouraged, challenged, and lifted up to trust you more. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So David is fleeing from his son Absalom in fear. If you keep reading in chapter 15, you can see that Everybody's saying, David, you got to get out of here. Your son's going to come and he's going to kill you. And so David, he leaves. It's interesting that, I don't know, six, seven, eight years earlier, Absalom was the one fleeing the kingdom in fear of his father. Now David is fleeing the kingdom in fear of his son. And one of the first stops that David makes along the way is, Almost a funny exchange to me in chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, verse 5. This distant relative of former King Saul, they stop at his home. His name is uh, Shammai. And this guy follows David around, cursing him. He's hollering curses at him. And not just curses, he's throwing stuff at him. He's throwing rocks and things at David. And he's cursing him. Interesting. So his son still wants to kill him and take his throne. The hearts of the people are not with him anymore. One of his best friends, Ahithophel, has turned on him. And now some long-lost relative of King Saul is following him around and throwing dust in his face and throwing curses at him all the time. How was your week? Oh, Lord. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. So David's family is a wreck. Uh, We haven't even talked about what Absalom does when he gets to Jerusalem after David leaves. We're really not going to talk about it much today, only for me to point out that sin has consequences that affect more than just the person immediately involved. And we see it so clearly in this story. It's been said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you can pay. And it's true. Jason in Sunday school used the illustration of a trampoline getting blown by a windstorm and how when you find that trampoline, it's just demolished and in pieces. And sin has the same effect in our lives. It blows us far away from where we should be and it leaves us with just pieces to pick up. Certainly, what we just said about sin rings true in the life of David. And I've just got to believe that it rings true in our own lives too. The 17th and 18th chapter of 2 Samuel 
chapter or Second Samuel 17 and 18. They go on to describe uh, David running from Absalom, and it ends with Absalom's unusual death because of his thick hair getting caught in the branches of a tree. He's riding a donkey in battle, and he gets his hair caught in trees, in a tree, and he is vulnerable and is killed, run through with multiple spears into his heart. Psalm 3, turn there. Our focus this morning is on what David has to say in this psalm, so I do want to read this together. It's only eight verses. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation in him, for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to you, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. That's what David was told in 2 Samuel fifteen thirteen. They're not with you anymore, David. They're gone. You've lost them. And this is where fear began to set in. If it wasn't already, this is, David knew something was going on. Everybody was telling him, you got to get out of here. You should be afraid. And he was, and he left. Everybody was telling him, look at verse 2 of Psalm 3, everybody was telling him that even God couldn't save him from this. There's no salvation in him for him in God. Now, it's possible that the people who were saying this didn't actually feel that God was unable to help David, like he was incapable of it, but that he maybe at this point was unwilling to help David. They looked at David's past sins, and they thought, oh, he's got it coming. He deserves this. God's not going to help him now after all of that pointing to his past. This is really what Saul's relative Shammai said in verse 8 of 2 Samuel 16. And it's, it's actually probably what David thought as well because he didn't really correct him. In fact, in that situation with Shammai, he said, hey, don't get him to be quiet. Maybe it's the Lord who's telling him to curse me. Maybe David thought this was true. Spurgeon said, it's the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to the fear that there's no help for us in God. To think that we are beyond the help of God himself is a horrible place to be. Have you been there? But this psalm, David, in this psalm, it takes a a direction that maybe we didn't see coming. David turns, I think, rather abruptly from fear to faith. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory, and the lifter of my head. This wasn't just a prayer asking God to be a shield, to be a protection for him. This was a declaration of fact that God is already his shield. So he's moved from fear to faith. 
a lot of people said there was no help for him in, in God. God wasn't going to help him. But David knew that God was still with him. God was his shield. No one could shake David's confidence in God as his help. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So some people cursed David, said that God would want nothing to do with him. David probably maybe even agreed, but yet here he can say, he has heard me. Maybe, he sh- maybe I don't deserve it, but he has heard me and he's answered me. And so even, so even though Absalom was in the capital city of Jerusalem, taking the throne from David, David knew that it wasn't Absalom who was the king. It wasn't Absalom who enthroned God's holy hill. That place is only held by God himself. And this God heard David and he helped David. Spurgeon also said, we need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer hearing God. David continues in verses 5 and 6 with confidence. This is amazing to me. And if, if you're like me, when you're in the middle of a difficult situation or you're anticipating maybe a hard conversation with somebody or just maybe some confrontation at all or just under a lot of stress in general, it, you find it hard to sleep at night. You don't have to raise your hand. I bet we've all been there at some point, maybe some more than others. But, you know, for whatever reason, you're, you're, just, you're trying to work things out in your mind, trying to play out every scenario trying to maybe recount conversations that you've had, wishing you'd have said something different. Have you been there? It's exhausting, isn't it? We, we don't, even if we do sleep, it's not real good sleep. It's restless. Our mind is not really there. The situation that David found himself in would fall into that kind of category, Right? There's a mutiny. His son is trying to kill him to take the throne. Most of the country of, that he has given so much to is now against him. He is being surrounded on every side. Enemies are literally closing in on him. So it's actually really surprising what he says in verse 5, I think. He says, I lay down and slept. That's just a very short phrase, and there's not a whole lot to it, but I think it tells us something here. David has moved from fear to faith, and in that faith now, he has the confidence to just lay down and sleep. You can imagine this scenario. He he, he may be in a cave somewhere, hiding out. Maybe he didn't even light a fire for fear that the enemy might come and find them, and they are hunkered down, and David, maybe for a with a pillow for a rock, a rock for a pillow. Hopefully your pillows aren't rocks normally. A rock for a pillow, he lays down and sleeps. What kind of guy can do that? David could. He was backstabbed by his friends. He was turned on by his own people and he was being hunted by his very own son. And yet he lay down and slept. Now, uh, Nikki and I had Emery 12 years ago. And before we had kids, I slept like a log. And Nikki heard every sound in the house. And so she'd wake me up. What was that sound? Do you guys, any relationships similar to that? What was that sound? Did you hear that? 
Um, so usually I'd make up some reason that the sound happened. Fairly confident that it was the truth, but... Um, okay, fast forward af- after we had kids, we swapped. Now I hear every sound that our children make. And she sleeps right through it. She's, she does. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to chalk that up to she paid her dues with nursing in the middle of the night and all of that stuff. So I, I don't really mind. But she was just, especially when we had little ones, um, littler than we have now, uh, it's just exhausting, for, especially for a mom who's nursing. Like it's, They're just exhausted. And by the time they hit the pillow, they're out. They can sleep. But not me anymore. I hear every little noise that's made. When I do sleep, or when I did sleep, it was just mostly out of exhaustion, right? You guys, anybody feel that way even today? Like, when I sleep, it's mostly just because I'm exhausted. I don't, I don't know that that's the kind of sleep that's being described here. When David says, I laid down and sleep, I don't think it's just because of exhaustion. I, I, I think it's the sleep of confident trust. People wanted him dead and were circling in. But David had the confidence to just lay down and sleep. He didn't sleep well because he had the situation under control. He slept well because he knew his protector did. To lie down and sleep in those kinds of circumstances is in itself, I think, an act of faith. And it's a sign of the peaceful heart that growing faith receives from the Lord. This agrees, I think, with everything David's already said in this psalm so far. Many are saying there is no salvation for him, but you, O Lord, you're a shield about me. So he's moved from fear to faith now to just reliant trust in the Lord, and he's able to just lay down and sleep. Now, I don't think he's denying what's happening. He's not trying to, to like ignore that his son is hunting him, that the people are against him now. He's not trying to downplay or deny that there's a problem. He's just reminding himself of what's true. What is true? The Lord is the lifter of his head, he says. The Lord is his shield. The Lord is his glory. The Lord is his salvation. Who's more powerful, the Lord or Absalom? That's, I think, what's going on in David's mind. Is the Lord more powerful? Or are David's enemies more powerful? David was confident in his answer, and so he could sleep. Turn this to yourself for just a moment this morning. What's going on in your life where you need now to be reminded of what's really true? Because fear causes us to think all kinds of wrong things about God. We need to be reminded of what's true. And so we can read Psalm 3 and say, the Lord is the lifter of our head. The Lord is our shield. The Lord is our glory, our salvation. And if God hears David's prayers, surely he hears your prayers. Surely he answers your prayers. And I think he wants to give you the kind of rest that David had here. I think we know this to be true. Psalm 127.2 says, he gives to his beloved sleep. So I had a college professor tell me this, which I'm afraid college students abused over the years, but he said, one of the most spiritual things you can do is take a nap. I don't know. 
But it seems to be that sleep is a, is a gift from the Lord. Some of you now are saying, yeah, that's true. A nap would be a gift today. In order to get a good night of sleep, maybe we need to remind ourselves of what's true. About God. About who He is. Remind ourselves of this simple truth. And this is not going to blow your mind. This is not going to be something that you probably even jot down in your Bible as a note. But it's just so simple that we need to hear it again. God is in control. God is in control. Sleep wasn't the only thing that David trusted God with, though. Keep reading in verse uh, 5. He says, I woke again. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. David praises God not just for the sleep that he gets, but for waking him up in the morning. Waking up was another blessing from God because in in reality, David didn't know if he was going to wake up again. His enemies could have found him in the night and taken him out. He, He wasn't sure, but he said, the Lord sustained me. I woke up. Commentator David Gusick says, God sustains us in our sleep, but we take it for granted. But think of it. You're asleep. You're unconscious. It's like you're dead to the world, yet you breathe. Your heart pumps. Your organs continue to operate. The same God who sustains us in our sleep will sustain us in our difficulties. So this gives David just incredible confidence But I have to point out that this is not confidence in himself. He knows the situation and the temptation to fear is real, but he says he will not be afraid. He says, I will not be afraid. With God sustaining him, David could answer the people who were saying that God had forgotten him. With God sustaining him, David could lie down at night in peace and wake up and rise in the morning without fear. With God sustaining him, David didn't need to fear an opposing army or uh, or any other enemy. I want us to turn to one more text this morning in Romans chapter 8. Put your marker in Psalm 3 and turn to Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 18. My hope is that as we read these verses, we're going to read 18 through 39, that we don't, we don't read them with a man-centered mindset because I don't think that's how Paul wrote them. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, 
The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are blessings and promises heaped on top of one another in these verses. But guess what? These verses are not about you. They're not about me. Paul explains it. His purpose here is not to exalt mankind. He's spent chapters of this theologically rich book explaining how no one is good and deserving. Instead, he's exalting the plan and the purpose and the power of God. Just glance through that text again. It's God who searches and knows the heart. It's God who helps us in our weakness. It's God who works all things together for good. It's God who calls, who foreknew, who predestined, who justifies, who glorifies. It's God who is for us. It's God who overcomes distress, persecution, danger, the sword, death. If we read all of these things that the Lord has done and focus on ourselves, we are reading it wrong. We are the recipients of this mercy, grace, and love, but it's all about what the Lord has done. It's him who has done this. I hope like David, we can see and proudly acknowledge that our confidence is in the Lord because it's the Lord who sustains us. Just like David said, the Lord sustains him. Look at verse 7 of Psalm 3 again. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. All the Lord has to do in David's mind is stand up. (laughs) Lord, just get up, arise, and everything changes. And so that's why we pray. David is sure he'll be saved if God just stands up and works. 
He's sure of it because the Lord's done it before. He's seen him do it. It's a done deal in David's mind. So his enemies who set themselves against David and they gnash their teeth at him like wild beasts are going to be struck on the cheek and have their teeth knocked out. Now that's pretty graphic language and it's used on purpose. Equating wicked people with wild animals was a pretty typical um, correlation or comparison in the book of Psalms, especially for David. And striking somebody on the cheek, if you slapped somebody, I mean, it's kind of the same way today. If somebody comes up to you and smacks you in the cheek, it's, you, you get an idea. You know what's happening. Uh, it's not a good thing. You're disgracing them. You're calling them out. It is an insult. I think here, though, when it talks about hitting them on the cheek, I think it's connected with this idea of breaking the teeth. And, and here's, here's why. Because the, the image that David is painting is that thousands of enemies are circling him. They're ready. They're kind of like a group of ravenous wolves, of predators would be wild beasts. They'd be circling around him, closing in on him. But his protector, his shield, deals this crushing blow to them that knocks out their teeth and just makes them powerless. This is a silly example, but it's the first thing that popped to my mind, so you get a little bit of insight there, unfortunately. But have you guys seen that Christmas movie, the one with Santa Claus is coming to town, the claymation one with the big bumble and Yukon Cornelius? You guys seen that? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, that's Rudolph? Obviously, I need to watch it again. Yukon Cornelius is one of my idols, hence the big beard and, you know. Um, but in that, in that goofy movie, it comes to the end and they're so afraid of this bumble. And what does the little wannabe dentist, Hermie, do? He pulls all the teeth out of the bumble and he comes in and they're all afraid. And he's like, you don't need to be afraid of this guy anymore. There's no danger here. Guys, that's a silly example. But I think this is the idea that David is painting. It's the idea he's getting at. We don't need to fear the enemies and their sharp teeth because the Lord has dealt the knockout blow and removed the danger. There's no sting anymore to death, to fear, to sin. It's been done in the past. God has saved him in the past. And so David prays that the same thing would happen now. In verse 8, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David recognized and celebrated the fact that it's God alone who saves. Romans 9.16 says, then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. That is the very sum and substance of the biblical doctrine of salvation by grace alone that we believe. We've already read Romans 8. It's a work of God, not the will of man. And so salvation belongs to him. God calls people by his grace. God quickens them by his spirit and God keeps them by his own power. And the blessings to God's people were not given to the other nations. They weren't given to the Egyptians. God's judgment fell on them. 
God's blessings weren't given to the Ninevites, although partially they were for a time when Jonah preached. They weren't given to the Philistines. No, this kind of particular love of God's was specific to his people, to the Israelites. It was reserved for his own people. Now, this psalm ends with a familiar, though maybe foreign word to us, Selah. Is that how you say it? Selah, Selah? I'm not totally sure. I look at you, Charity, like you should know. Do you know? Selah? Okay. So I say it's familiar because it's in a lot of the Psalms. It's in a couple other biblical books too. We've seen it and read it, but maybe we don't know exactly what it means. We're actually going to talk about it in a lot more detail in Psalm 77 in about a month or so at the end of May. But basically it means to pause. We're going to, we're going to pause here. It's almost like a musical term to a degree. It's like we're going to pause here. We're going to lift up and we're going to praise. So... David, a couple of different times in this psalm, even as short as it is, it's like he's reminding us to stop. Pause for a second. Lift up your eyes, lift up your hearts to the one who protects it and praise. And so I said at the beginning, this is a psalm of lament. David is lamenting his enemies surrounding him, but it's not only lament. There is trust here. There is thanksgiving here. In fact, there is praise in this psalm. So as we come to the end of Psalm 3, we're encouraged and instructed to just pause and consider if by faith we are able to see Jesus as our own salvation by the free gift of himself to us. Do you know him that way? Do you know Jesus as the free gift given to you? Because see, salvation belongs to the Lord, but it is a blessing that God gives to his people. God wants his people to have it. It's of the Lord, but he gives it freely. Do you belong to him today? Are you his or are you still trying to overcome temptation and fear and anxiety and the enemy all by yourself in your own power? Because you won't win that way. You can't win that way. You weren't designed to win that way. But Jesus was and has won on your behalf. May we, even when we are surrounded on every side, just like David, may we rest secure in the arms of our Savior. I hope we can confidently sing a song of old that says this, Rise, my soul, Adore and wonder, ask, oh, why such love to me? Grace hath put me in that number of the Savior's family. Hallelujah, thanks eternal to thee. Can we lie down and sleep tonight secure in the arms of our protector? Or do you question whether you really believe or not? Please come as we sing our last song together in just a moment, please come up. I'll be standing right here. If you have thoughts or questions and you're not sure, I would love to sit down and talk with you more. If this is your confidence in Christ, let's pause as we sing this song together and just lift up our hearts to him in praise. Let's pray. Lord, we may feel hard-pressed on every side this morning. You know the situation that each 
person here is in, each person that's listening, you know what's going on. And Lord, we believe that Psalm 3 was written out of a desperate situation, but Lord, it also resonates in our own hearts in 2021 because we're faced with similar situations. Maybe not enemies with swords and daggers, Lord, but we're faced with difficult things that we cannot fix on our own. So it must be your protection, your shield about us. You must be the one that lifts our head. So Lord, if we are struggling to do that on our own, to fight these battles by ourselves, God, help us to repent of that, to recognize that's not the way, and to put our faith and trust in Christ alone that we might rest secure and sleep well, knowing that you are in control, Lord. Thank you for Christ, that he intercedes for us still. It's in his name that we pray, amen.